0: How many meetings or events have you attended over the past week? Maybe you've been invited over for dinner or been to a birthday party, or you've gotten together in a favorite park for a hike. Chances are you've been in at least one work, client, or school meeting. Perhaps you've attended a conference, a seminar, training, networking event, city council meeting, church gathering, book group, or rotary luncheon. And how often have you left those gatherings feeling like it was time well spent, that something was accomplished, whether that was progress on a project, deeper connections with friends, or even learning something new? Too often, we come together with what we think is a clear intention. But in reality, it's murky at best and a huge missed opportunity at worst. Our question this episode is, How can we make sure our gatherings aren't a complete waste of time? Welcome to Episode 48 of How Can I Say This, where we look to build connection and community through courageous conversations. I'm your host, Beth Bilo. Thank you so much for joining me. Good conversations go hand-in-hand with good gatherings. The amount of thought put into a gathering, and I'm talking about the birthday party as much as the team meeting has an important effect on the quality of conversation, connection, and community. For the next few minutes, I'm going to share information from my new favorite book, The Art of Gathering, and use some of my own recent experiences as examples of gatherings gone right and wrong. As I make my way through the book, I plan to share additional thoughts with you. This concept of intentional gathering is so foundational to our focus of this podcast that it's worth giving the topic its own episodes. Before we jump in, I want to remind you to visit HowCanIsayThis.com for more information about this podcast. From there, you can also access past episodes, subscribe, and find details about how to leave a review or offer feedback. And if you find this podcast useful, please share it with your friends, family, and colleagues, and that includes those who might not be so great at running meetings, if you think that they will find this interesting. An occasional feature of this podcast is responding to listener questions about conflict, interpersonal communication, connection, and relationship building. I welcome your questions for inclusion in a future episode. You'll find the online submission form and other instructions at HowCanISayThis.com. A few months ago, I watched the documentary RBG, which is a survey of the life and work of United States Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I watched it alone one weekend when my husband was out of town. It left me full of emotion and questions and lots of energy. The problem was there was no one around to debrief with. So I decided to suggest to a friend at my church that we have a viewing party at one of our homes and invite a small group, maybe eight to ten people, to join us. We talked about logistics, where to host it, the date and time, how many people we could fit, and if we wanted to have food. We didn't explicitly talk about the intention of the gathering or who we wanted to be there. That part of it was kind of fuzzy, and maybe we were making some assumptions. We knew that we wanted to watch RBG together and talk about it, and we thought there would be others that would want to do the same. I'm going to pause the story right there, because it's a good point to introduce you to the book The Art of Gathering by Priya Parker it's a new addition to my Kindle book collection I'm only about one and a half chapters into it but I can already tell that it's going to completely change the way I view gatherings meetings have been an active part of my life for three decades since I first started being part of meetings when I was an undergrad serving in student government to my career in nonprofit management to today when I attend community gatherings to talk about divisive social and political issues I've probably spent thousands of Hours in meetings with others in groups of three or more. That's not even counting social gatherings, such as the numerous fundraising events and dinner parties I've enjoyed over the years. As a semi social introvert, I both dread and crave gathering with others. When a gathering is thoughtful, well planned, and purposeful, I am delighted to be there. When it's well intentioned, but kind of a mess, I'm usually glad I attended, but I leave exhausted. And when the gathering is a should, as in we should meet about this or we should get together, then I'm often resentful that I gave up my time and spent my energy on a gathering that really gave me nothing in return. And even as I say that, I'm aware that I can always take the optimistic make lemons out of lemonade, oh, wait, make lemonade out of lemons <laughs> perspective on such meetings, trying to find at least one kernel of progress or connection to be grateful for. And I often do, even though overall, I might resent the abuse of the gift of my time. But my point, and I believe it's the point of Parker's book, is that I shouldn't have to work that hard. Whoever is planning the gathering should have put thought into making my return on time investment easy and obvious. Assuming one has a reasonable level of financial security, if you ask them what they value most, time or money, usually they will say time. As a friend and colleague said during a workshop I attended nearly 10 years ago, I don't mind giving you a dollar because I know I'll get that dollar back somehow. But if I give you an hour of my time, I'll never get that hour back. So you had better make it worth it. For a while, and I don't know if it's still popular or not, there was a trend that reflected this truth, sometimes called the non-event. A typical nonprofit usually does one or more fundraising events in a year, usually a breakfast, a luncheon, a gala, or some other type of gathering that brings together donors, volunteers, and community members to celebrate the mission of the nonprofit and raise money so that they can keep doing all of their good work. Those events— and I speak from experience both being on the um, the staff side, the volunteer side, and the attendee side, they're extremely labor-intensive, and they require financial and staff and volunteer resources that can stretch most nonprofits thin for months at a time. So someone, somewhere, came up with the idea of inviting donors to a non-event— Instead of spending $200 per person on a gala ticket or buying a fancy outfit and hiring a sitter and spending time getting your hair and your nails done and all of those kinds of things, donors were sent an invitation to stay home and instead just send a check. The nonprofit was saying, we know you love us. You know we love you, and we honor your time. We know you're busy, so enjoy a chance to support us without leaving the comfort of your own home. It's a bit of a gimmick that you could probably only do once, maybe twice, but I, for one, would feel a sense of relief if a cause I support occasionally said, hey, take a break this year. 100% of your gift goes to our programs, instead of 30% of it covering the cost of renting a venue, paying a band, and giving you a mug with our logo on it. I think I even saw some nonprofits add an incentive. For instance, if you give it a certain level, a board member would deliver pizza and a movie to your house the night of the non-event. And I should say, we don't just call them fundraising events, but they're also friend raising events. And so they do serve multiple purposes. This is just one example of the way that people will tend to value their time over their money. If you're asking us to gather, there needs to be a compelling reason. But we often forget that and we gather out of habit, or obligation, perception of necessity, or even accidentally, if we find ourselves together and say, well, since we're all here, we might as well meet. In the opening chapter of The Art of Gathering, Parker talks about gathering with intention and clear purpose. She writes, Specificity is a crucial ingredient. The more focused and particular a gathering is, the more narrowly it frames itself, and the more passion it arouses. She makes it clear that she's not only talking about professional gatherings. This goes to my story about the fundraising events. She says, Even outside of work, you are proposing to consume people's most precious resource, time. Making the effort to consider how you want your guests and yourself to be altered by the experience is what you owe people as a good steward of that resource. The key words there are altered by the experience. Parker invites us to dig deeper than the obvious reasons for gathering. A meeting can either be defined by process, and she uses the example of a meeting to discuss quarterly results, for instance, or it can be defined by purpose, using the same example to examine those quarterly results with the intention of creating an action plan or analyzing them for indicators of mistakes that can be corrected moving forward. Parker invites us to do the following. Reverse engineer an outcome. Think of what you want to be different because you gathered and work backward from that outcome. She offers numerous gathering examples that I won't go into here, such as a neighborhood potluck or a book event. On the surface, the reasons to gather in those instances seem obvious. Potlucks are fun and we host them every year. A book event helps to promote and sell an author's book. But go down several layers, and you'll find the potluck is really about passing along certain values to the neighborhood children, and the book event is really about raising awareness of different perspectives. From there, you can create a gathering that facilitates those specific outcomes, and when you do that, you're making space for having more courageous conversations and building stronger connections. So if our first step is to determine our intention with as much clarity and specificity as we can, let's go back to my RBG viewing party. When my friend and I talked, the closest we got to being specific is that we wanted it to be a safe space for people to share their reactions and opinions on a topic that could be potentially controversial. We knew that it would most likely attract those who were fans of RBG, which means they also likely shared similar political and social views. We knew intuitively that the safe space concern wasn't really going to be an issue because we were unlikely to have dissenters in our midst. But we still wanted to be sure that people could express themselves freely. That was as far as we got to a clear intention, and it felt clear enough. After all, this was not a big formal event that people paid to attend. It was just a casual gathering at someone's home to watch and talk about a movie. Fast forward ahead to that evening... And we had a great time. Watching the movie together was meaningful. It was fun to share reactions to certain scenes with the group. I had agreed to facilitate the discussion afterwards, and so I jotted down a few talking points and questions while we watched. The post-movie conversation went in very interesting directions. Since some of the attendees didn't know each other, creating safety did turn out to be somewhat important, but it also turned out to be easy, as friends of friends tend to have similar leanings and perspectives. By the time we said our goodbyes at around 9.30, we were already talking about doing another movie discussion night in the near future. So by all accounts, it was a success. I'm guessing that if you spoke with each person who attended, they'd say that it was worth it to attend, that it was interesting and thought provoking. But based on what I've read in The Art of Gathering, it could have been more. Let's say we had decided in advance that we wanted the evening to energize our commitment to gender equality, since that's going to be the heart of RBG's eventual legacy. We could have seeded the conversation with advanced reflection questions about personal experiences with equality and inequality. We might have created a resource list to share with attendees who wanted to learn more or get involved. We could have even invited someone from a local nonprofit that supports women or a lawyer who specializes in gender equality cases. It is true that sometimes we want to gather just for fun, and maybe even want an escape from the social pressures to take action, or the idea that conversations about big topics always have to be profound and life-altering. Maybe it was just about us getting together and learning something new. That intention is perfectly fine. My point is that when we say yes to that, we also should be aware of what we're saying no to. When we decide how to structure the evening, we were mostly focusing on process and very little on purpose. In doing that, we didn't even realize what we were saying no to. More intentional event planning would have explored those possibilities, including the possibility that the intention was to have fun and meet new people, and then deliberately chosen its purpose. If we decided it was to have fun, then we'd be aware of what we were saying no to. We could then, based on how the event went, revisit the purpose and either keep going in that direction or choose a different purpose for the next gathering. The point is to avoid defaulting to, hey, let's just get together, it'll be fun, and going from there without any further thought. If you do that, it's possible that you're missing opportunities to make what was already a cool idea even more valuable to those who attend. I'm considering suggesting the documentary 13th for our next movie night. The movie explores the criminalization of African Americans and the problem of mass incarceration. This time, we're going to start out by having a more defined focus, which I'm sure will include friendship and can also include elements that will have an effect long after the gathering has ended. And I'm already thinking of inviting a new neighbor who happens to be a lawyer and works for the local ACLU chapter in their smart justice program. And that point brings me to my second learning from the book. And since I'm not completely through the chapter, this is just a taste of it. In addition to having a clear intention, you have to know who to include and who to exclude. Parker puts an emphasis on who to exclude because that's the more challenging aspect of planning a gathering. Our social tendencies lead us to want to build a big tent and include everyone. As she writes, we've all experienced that the more the merrier is a philosophy that a lot of event planners employ. She says that inclusion is vitally important, especially in a time when we're aware of the marginalization of minorities and the ways in which we divide ourselves up into exclusive little tribes that are hostile to outsiders. We are naturally drawn towards people who look, sound, act, and think like us, and probably no amount of diversity training is ever going to change that. The goal isn't to shame us into never gathering with people we naturally are attracted to. It's more to remove our blinders and raise awareness of that tendency so that we can find our own ways of acting against that natural instinct in the spirit of expanding and enriching our human family. Having an all our welcome big tent is a generous and wonderful thing. And there are times when it's counterproductive to the intention of the gathering. One snag we encountered in our movie night planning was that one of the four co-hosts didn't know that we had decided to make it a gathering for women only. Either me and my friend thought it and forgot to tell her, or we told her but didn't emphasize it, or we just assumed it because of the subject of the documentary. Regardless of why it didn't come up, she ended up inviting her husband and the husband of a friend who was also attending. When we became aware of this about a week before the event, my original friend, who I planned this with in the beginning, she and I exchanged a very quick flurry of emails trying to decide what to do. It felt awkward to uninvite someone, but to have the husbands there really wasn't part of the plan. My friend talked to the co-host and clarified that we'd meant for it to be a ladies' night. Fortunately, she took the news graciously and agreed to tell the guys that they had the night off. Parker makes the point that if we plow ahead with a gathering that has no clear purpose, the question of purpose will be forced when it comes time to clarify the invitation list. And that's what happened in our case. By being confronted with the dilemma about including the men, we were forced to define that part of the purpose of the evening, and that it was for women to share openly, commiserate with one another without having to explain their feelings or potentially feel judged or misunderstood, and to have an exclusively female perspective. Could we have had some of that if the men had joined us? Sure. But the energy would have been different. The same stories might not have been shared. The same vulnerability might not have been expressed. If we decided men welcome, the way we set the stage for openness and vulnerability would have been influenced by who was in the room. It could be a fabulous gathering with or without the men. The point is to be aware of how who's in the room intersects with the purpose of the gathering. Parker writes this about exclusion. With certain types of gatherings, over-including can keep connections shallow because there are so many different lines through which people could possibly connect that it can become hard to meaningfully activate any of them. Excluding thoughtfully allows you to focus on a specific, underexplored relationship. There's much more nuance on this point than I have time to go into here, so I suggest that you read the book if you're interested. My main goal here is to plant the seed of awareness. Just knowing the degree to which purpose and participants have the power to shape a gathering has already transformed the way I experience meetings. I was just at one earlier this month. It was a very well-intentioned community gathering that brought together an amazingly diverse audience to talk about a very tough subject. However, despite its good intentions, it lacked a clear purpose. Desired outcomes weren't shared. Next steps were vague. Why we were gathered was loosely defined, but given the catalyst that had led to the decision to meet in the first place, the why of the meeting could have been powerful and healing. Instead, it was messy and slightly unsatisfying. There were huge missed opportunities at every turn. At one point, my husband whispered to me, this is a waste of time. He was the one who asked me to go with him, so he had some emotional investment in the meeting. And in saying this is a waste of time. He wasn't talking about the topic of the meeting or the people who care deeply about the outcomes. He was expressing frustration about the gathering itself, its lack of focus and purpose. He felt disappointment because it could have been so much more. He wants to spend time on the issue. He just wants that time to be purposeful and his time to be respected. And that's what all of us want. Here's your call to action, The next time you know you're going to be part of a gathering, whether it's a meeting, a party, a special interest group, or any other type of event that's held around a common cause, ask yourself, why are we meeting? What will change as a result of these specific people getting together at this specific time in this specific place? How is success being defined? If you're the leader, host, or organizer, take time in advance to think through those questions until you come up with a compelling answer. And the compelling answer is most likely not going to be the obvious answer. Ask yourself, what would make this gathering worth someone giving up unreplaceable time for? If you can't think of something compelling enough, remember, you don't have to meet. It's okay to say, it'll be fun, we're just doing it for the heck of it. And if that's the case, by all means, meet. But if it's important to make meaning from the gathering, keep digging down on the purpose until you arrive at the transformational reason for meeting. And then work backward from there. What structure will contribute to that transformation? What information? What types of conversations? What outcome will advance the cause? And finally, who is most going to benefit and contribute from being in attendance. You might ultimately decide that it's a free-for-all, come one, come all, we don't need no stinking purpose kind of event. At least if you decide that, you won't have that post-event feeling of, oh, we should have done this or that. It would have been so much more meaningful. You can move ahead with your plans without second-guessing or potential regrets. If you're an attendee and have no say in the purpose or the participants, take the opportunity to look at the event through the lens of those same questions. Why are we here? What's the outcome that we're hoping for? What can I learn from this that will help me when it's my turn to plan an event? Notice what works and what doesn't. And if it mostly doesn't work, Use your awareness of how challenging it can be to put together an event or a meeting, and feel compassion and gratitude for those who are doing their best to make it meaningful. When I started this episode, I had no idea I was going to have so much to say about this topic, and I'm only on page 48 of the book, so this clearly has gotten my wheels turning. As I make my way through the book, I'll pop back to this podcast to share insights and learning. The quality of our gatherings is directly connected to the quality of our conversations. So I'm excited to explore the parallels and share them with you over the coming months. As we close, a couple of quick items. You'll find links to Priya Parker's work on the episode webpage at HowCanIsayThis.com. You should also know that I offer facilitation and interpersonal communications coaching services. If you want to learn more, send me a quick email at beth at howcanisaythis.com. There's also a contact form on the website. And getting in touch with me doesn't obligate you to anything. It just gets us connected so that we can have a conversation about what you're looking for and if we're a good fit for one another. Please be in touch if I can be of service. This is Beth Below, and you've been listening to How Can I Say This? Our podcast producer is Paul Messing, and our theme music is by Brett Anderson. Thank you so much for joining me today, and I invite you to take what you've learned here and use it to speak up, speak out, and speak courageously.